This morning we want to look at some words of Jesus that are some of his more familiar words and yet uh, oftentimes seem to be kind of abstract in our lives and we struggle with how do we put these into action. So we want to once again hear what Mark puts in the center of his gospel uh, because he believes this is the center of the gospel of Jesus as well. So let's be standing please as we hear this, the word of God. Mark chapter 8. Beginning in verse 34, Jesus called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? May God bless the reading of his word. How many of you worry about the moral direction of our culture, of our nation. And it seems like, hey, I got some hands that seem to be getting further and further away from the principles of the Bible, from the teachings of Jesus guiding our moral compass and what we consider to be good and right. However, today, instead of wringing our hands, I want us to begin by celebrating a way in which this culture, our society, this nation, over the past 100 and 150 years has moved much closer to the heart of God, much nearer to the teachings of our Lord. And that is, in particular, our regard for and our treatment of children. Now, those of us sitting here, we think, well, we love our children. We will protect our children in every way. We are willing to give up just about anything for our children. We as parents in particular, anything our children really need, in fact, too many times even just what they want, we're willing to sacrifice in order to try to provide that. And given the opportunity, if we had to, we would even lay down our lives for our children. Well, that ethos that exists among us today hasn't always been there. It's so ingrained in us, we think, well, that's just the way people have always been. But if you go back and read history, in the late 1800s into the early 1900s, there were really no child labor laws. And thousands of children worked all day in factories. In fact, they weren't even able to go to school because they had to leave the home and at an early age get into dangerous jobs. And normally they got the jobs that the adults didn't want to take because they were dangerous and life-threatening. And these children would be locked into these dingy factories slaving away. In fact, a little bit of an aside here. Do you know that's why we have Sunday school today? Because some of the, the ministers in England, where it first started, looked around and saw that such a large percentage of children were having to work every day that they weren't able to go to school and they were growing up illiterate. And so they began teaching the children on Sunday. They had Sunday school, 
where they would bring them in, and the basic agenda was to teach them how to read and write and to do the things, the basic skills of life that they weren't getting because they were working all day. Child abuse laws are, are in effect today, and, and we know that even though we still have people who are demented and we have people that, that abuse children, the laws say you can't do that. And whenever something is uncovered where abuse is happening, all our nation, the, the, whole, the, the whole group just said, that's wrong. And we have to stop that. And the perpetrators are very quickly censored and punished for what they're doing. Well, that didn't always be the case. That wasn't always the case. Our child abuse laws are kind of rather new on the books because before Back in the 1800s, that was kind of family matters. You didn't get into a family. And however parents and those in authority chose to treat children, that was their business and none of mine. So we've moved a long way. And I think that's good, don't you? We've moved in the direction that we believe is the heart of God, that children are special and that we should care for them. And you believe that and you practice that. I doubt that there's, no, there's one person in this room who would not sacrifice something for the well-being of a child. And not only your own, but other children as well. And you probably, given the opportunity, would lay down your life for that child. One of my family stories that we've always told is the time when I was like maybe two at the oldest and my family and one of my dad's cousins and some friends were all standing out in the front yard visiting. And I was there, and for some reason, only known to a two-year-old, I decided to take out running into the street. And everybody's like, oh, you know, because there I went. And they could see that a car was just barreling down the street, going way too fast to stop. Well, immediately, my dad's cousin took out after me. And put himself in danger, grabbing me, and the car just missed us by inches. Would have gotten him as well. I talked to him later in life as I heard that story, and I said, well, thanks. <laughs> and he said, you know, I never thought about it. I saw you going, I knew we had to get you, so I went and got you. You would do the same, I think. If, if, I don't know if I could think that fast, but other than that, the impulse would be there, wouldn't it? That you see a child in danger. And you run and you help that child. Well, we've talked about that long enough. Let's talk about something else. That's my transition. Uh, they, they, they teach us that in homiletics courses. You know, you need to make these smooth transitions. Well, that's it. Not going to talk about that anymore. Let's talk about something else. Let's talk about the text that we just read. But before we can do that, we really need to remind you of the backstory. Now, most of you know this as well, because you know this text well, and you know the context in which it occurred. Jesus and his disciples have journeyed as far north as far as we know, as, as they ever went during Jesus' life. They've even gone north of Galilee. They're up in pagan territory, up around Caesarea Philippi. And they're kind of on a retreat, and Jesus is ministering to them and teaching them. And as a part of that, he says, well, who do people say I am? In other words, what are people saying about me? You know the answers. The disciples said, well, some people think you're John the Baptist. Come back from the dead. You know that Herod had executed John the Baptist, but now you're back, and that's who you are. Other people say, no, 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 this is Elijah. 
Now, one reason they would say that is because the very last verses of what we call the Old Testament, the Jewish Scripture, said that Elijah was coming back. And therefore, some of the people said, there he is. And they said, but other people say, well, no, 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 you're just one of the prophets. Maybe one of the ones, the old ones has come back, or maybe you're just a new prophet that God has arisen or has raised up amongst us. Jesus looked at him and said, okay, now who do you think I am? And Peter, speaking for the other disciples, made that great confession. You're the Christ. You are that one that God has promised all these generations, all these centuries that he was going to send. You are the one who has come to bring his kingdom into this world. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. And in essence, Jesus says, you're right. He goes on to say, he says, now, let's not be telling people that yet. It's not quite time to make that announcement widespread. But what I need to do now is teach you what that means. What does it mean to be the Christ? And in verse 31, if you're following along, it says, Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man, the Christ, the Messiah, must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, by the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed. And after three days, rise again. You know the rest of that story, don't you? Peter, who had made this great confession, is horrified. (laughs) One reason he's horrified right now is because he thinks Jesus is the Christ, and obviously Jesus doesn't know how to be the Christ. He's not doing what the Christ is supposed to do, talking about suffering, talking about dying. So the text tells us that Peter puts his arm around Jesus, takes him aside, and begins to, my version says, rebuke him. It is a strong word. That word can also be translated, correct him. Now, that has to bring a smile to your face, that the follower is now correcting the master. Takes him aside and says, we've got to tell you how you do this Messiah bit. You know, you need to learn how to be the Christ if you're going to be the Christ. Now, the problem is that Peter has what Martin Luther, centuries later, would call a theology of glory. Theology of glory. Now, what is that? Well, theology of glory is the idea that God and God's ways help me. That all of this is in existence so that I can have a better life. I can prosper. I can be healthy. I can be happy. And that's what Christ was supposed to do for the nation of Israel. Deliver them. Make their lives triumphant and victorious again. We in the church still sometimes preach a theology of glory. We dangle things in front of people and say, well, if you'll just come and be a part of us, your whole life will be much better. It'll be easier. Problems will be solved. And there's some truth to that. There's just enough truth to that to make it dangerous. Because certainly when we follow God and we avoid sinful behavior, sinful behavior is sinful because it doesn't work. It's destructive. It hurts us. 
So if we're following the ways of God, we're going to avoid some behaviors that could cause us a lot of problems in life. But that is not the crux of the gospel. It's not at the heart of the gospel. It is not the way of God. God does not exist. Jesus does not exist. The church does not exist to make my life better. Because the problem is the word my. Because I'm still thinking of me. Now, I can only imagine how Peter felt when Jesus just blew up on him right there. Uh, We only have a few instances where it looks like Jesus really lost his temper. And we think of him with the whip you know, driving the money changers out of the temple when he got mad about that and, and was, you know. But this time too, he looks at Peter and said, you're the devil. Get behind me. You're supposed to be following me, not trying to lead me, not trying to correct me. And the reason that Jesus reacted so strongly to this, I think really is twofold. One is he knows how important it is that Peter and the other disciples understand what a Messiah is. But it's more personal than that too. Because I think, and this is just my thinking, I can back it up with some stuff, but I wanted to share this with you. My thought is that this is the greatest battle that Jesus himself fought all through his life. The idea of giving himself up for others. Now, we know that that's what Satan went after him with on the tempta- during the temptations of 40 days in the wilderness, wasn't it? Satan went after him with the theology of glory. Now, Jesus, you know what your father is telling you you need to do, but why don't we do it a different way? Why don't we do bread and circuses and jumping off things? And, you know, let's do victory. Let's do a theology of glory. And Jesus had to struggle with that and fight against that. And now here one of his friends is trying to talk him back into it. And even the night before he died in the Garden of Gethsemane, it was still this battle he was fighting. What did he say? Lord, I know this is what you want me to do. But isn't there some other way to do it? And yet we know that he finally came back to, but not my will, not me. I'm not going to think of myself, but your will. Jesus died on the cross not because it benefited himself. He died on the cross because we needed him to die on the cross. And he was willing to lay down his life for that. Jesus did not have a theology of glory. Jesus had a theology of the cross, of self-sacrifice, of self-giving. And he knows that if you want to follow him, you're going to have to fight that same battle. And he knows how tough that is. You know, the passage that says that Jesus was tempted in all ways like we've been tempted... I tend to put that into little things, you know, certain desires I might have and little faults I might have, how they pull on me and all of this and think, well, Jesus must have gone through this too. Have y'all ever stopped and thought about that? When you're greatly tempted to do something you know is wrong, does it ever occur to you, well, maybe Jesus had to deal with that exact same temptation? Well, maybe he did, but the primary temptation he had to deal with and the primary temptation we have to deal with is whether or not we can get our eyes off ourselves. And truly care about the welfare of others. And truly do what is necessary 
for the benefit of others. This is why Jesus, whenever he calls his disciples to tell them, he also calls the crowd together. That's something different in the book of Mark here. Because always before, whenever Jesus had some special teaching, he took his disciples aside and he talked them. But this time, he calls the whole crowd up because he says, every one of you needs to hear this. Every one of you needs to hear that my way is the way of the cross. My way is the way of sacrifice. And if you want to follow me, you must take up your own cross and get behind me and serve others the way I am doing. Now, for many who heard him say those words initially, the cross became something very literal. Half, at least, of the apostles that heard him say that one day picked up a cross and walked down a road and were nailed to that cross. Other Christians, the disciples that heard him say that, suffered the same fate. And throughout history, people have died because they profess to be a follower of Jesus. And it's not only history, it's going on today. If you read the back pages of your newspaper, if you will scroll down a little bit on the, the, the Google search, you'll find out that Christians today in Egypt are being systematically exterminated. This is true. In areas where radical Islam has begun to dominate, they are systematically getting rid of the church. They've gone into gatherings of worship, of Christian worship, and killed up to 200 people at a time. In Nigeria, it's going on as well. And we as Christian brothers and sisters, our hearts ache for that, and we wonder what can we do about that. But then we think, well, that probably won't happen to us. And probably given the amount of time that if even everything goes like we might fear it might, it probably won't happen to most of us. We won't ever be called upon to actually give our lives for the profession of the gospel. We won't have someone point a gun at us and say, deny your faith or I'll kill you. So how do we interpret this? What do we do with this? Do we just let it become abstract? Do we just hope that we can do it? No. Because as we began this morning, I pointed out a way in which you're already doing this. We do this daily for our children. We set aside our wants and our needs for their benefit. Our hearts are tied to them. And every opportunity in which we see that we can be a blessing to children and helping them with physical, emotional, or spiritual needs, we're there, not even thinking about ourselves. The challenge is, can we broaden that circle to include others? Fred Craddock, I ran across a quote of his this week. Fred Craddock is a preacher that was kind of the guru preacher for my generation. We, you know, if Fred Craddock did it, it was a thing to do. I had never read this particular quote of his, but I thought it was very appropriate. He says, we think of giving 
our all to the Lord is like taking a thousand dollars, putting it on the table and saying, there it is, Lord, my whole life, I'm giving it to you. But for most of us in the day and time in which we live, what God tells us is to take that thousand dollars to the bank and get it broken into quarters and spend your life giving yourself away one quarter at a time. Every time you see a need, you give a little bit of yourself. You expand beyond this natural circle we have and take those same feelings of of desire that someone do well and prosper and be healthy and not just feel that way about children, but feel that way about this circle and this circle and that circle. I want to challenge you people who are married out there today. And if you have children, you know that feeling in your heart. Do you have that same feeling for your spouse? You know, Brian and I sort of did a little eye contact first service. I hadn't cleared this with him, but we talk enough about different people that we visit with in various times, especially those who are in conflict in marriages, and have expressed that the ultimate cause of almost every conflict in marriage is when one person begins thinking about himself or herself over the welfare of the other. And this is where the gospel becomes very real. Is where we're willing to give up something for ourselves for the sake of the other. Whether it be an emotional need, a physical need, or a spiritual need. And, and you young folks, I want to challenge you. Your parents are willing to give anything for you. Does it go the other way too? Have you matured enough in your following of Christ that you can set aside something you want or something that you think or something that you desire because it will be helpful to your parents? Not because they force you to, but because you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you're willing to set yourself aside and to serve even mom and dad. What about coworkers? Are we able to do it with them? And on and on we go till we get to the Good Samaritan, where a man finds someone lying, bleeding on the road, not knowing where the bandits are, not knowing whether or not it put his own life in risk. He stops and he helps because he understands that he's there to give of himself. I pray for the faith and the strength that if it comes my lot that someone says, It's your faith or your life. I'll tell them I'll keep my faith. But also pray for the strength to be able to give my life away quarter by quarter, dollar by dollar, to anyone who needs my assistance, whether physical or spiritual. The call of Jesus is to come and follow him. And if you look at the path he walked, it can be frightening but know that he walks it with you. Let's stand and sing.